Good morning, Refuge Church. It's good to uh, remotely or virtually be with you this morning. And so um, we're going to continue in the book of Exodus. Um, we thank uh, God that he has been faithful to us through the preaching of Pastor Rusty and uh, Pastor Jeff so far. And my hope is that I continue to be faithful as well. Um, and as we prepare to look at Exodus uh, 12 and 13, part of 13 today, what we want to think about is we all have defining moments in our lives. Uh, moments that shape who we are, that shape our choices, they shape our habits, um, and just our very being. And uh, one of these, de- you know, defining moments for my life was uh, when I was younger, I had a, a soccer coach who um, was a professional soccer coach. He ended up being uh, the, the goalkeeper for the first MLS uh, Cup champion, and uh, uh, Mark Sampson. And uh, he, he uh, pulled me and my parents to the side uh, after one practice and said, hey, John has the potential uh, to be a professional uh, soccer player, if that's something that he's interested in. And, you know, I was shocked, you know, I was floored um, by that. And uh, he said, you know, the only thing he lacks is he, he, he lacks discipline. He doesn't, you know, work uh, as hard as he should if he wants to become a professional. And so that shaped my life for the next, you know, five to ten years. And I, I worked on my game, I would say, two to three hours after practice. I would watch game film, um, you know, and I would work to try to become uh, a professional soccer player. And you might had to go play in college and, and different things like that, which I went on to do. Uh, but there was always these moments, you know, in that five to ten years that if I forgot that statement, if I forgot what I was striving for, then I would make bad choices. I wouldn't practice as much or I wouldn't eat as healthy or I wouldn't watch as much game film. And so these defining moments, while they're powerful and they can really drive and motivate us to to live different lives, we need reminders. We need uh, th- we need to remember those defining moments so that they will continue to drive our healthy life choices moving forward. And so uh, we, we're tempted with forgetfulness when it comes to these defining key moments in our lives. And so I think that's what uh, our writer, uh, Moses, is addressing with us today in Exodus 12 and 13, that there's this defining moment in the life of Israel and really the defining moment in, in God's people's lives, not just Israel, but God's people's lives, but particularly in our context in the life of Israel. It's a defining moment, and God sets up reminders. He sets up these rituals, these festivals, as a way um, for Israel to remember this defining moment in their history. Um, and it's a defining moment not just for Israel's history, but for God's people's history. So if I had a theme that I, you know, a big idea I think that we should take away from this text today would be this, that if God's redemption defines, then God's rituals remind. That if God's redemption, his rescuing providential power comes and defines who we are, defines who he is, define who we are in light of who he is, then he places these rituals in our lives to remind us of who he is and who we are in him. And so we have four reminders that we're going to get from this defining moment. The defining moment is the Passover. It's the final plague um, that happens 
in the Exodus story before Israel leaves Egypt. And so we have four reminders that we're going to pull from this account, from this narrative. And those four are God's Passover power, God's Passover price, God's Passover provision, and God's Passover picture. God's Passover power, God's Passover price, God's Passover provision, and God's Passover picture. So first, let's talk about God's Passover power. You can't help but as you look at this text, that since the beginning of Exodus, we've had um, this language in Exodus that's been rooted in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, in the first book of the Bible. And much of the language is also rooted in the very ideas, the themes, the language that happens in Genesis 1 through 3. That we have in that the account of how God created everything. That it says in Genesis 1 that the world, that God created the heavens and the earth. And so, you know, all the universe is in existence by verse, end of verse 2. But it, it also says that that universe was in chaos. It was, uh, it was not habitable. It was not a place where living creatures could flourish. And so what God does through the rest of Genesis 1 is he puts it into order. He makes it into an environment where all living creatures, plants, animals, and humans could flourish. And all of this is supposed to be, uh, he puts humanity to steward that, to take care of it, to, to kind of bring the best out of it. And all of that under the direction of God. But what we see here in uh, the beginning of Exodus is we see the idea of decreation. Right, we have a a godlike fear uh, figure in Pharaoh who um, wants to u- usurp God's authority, who sees himself as a deity, and wants to do with God's people, who wants to do with with not just God's people but probably other nations as well, what he so chooses. And so he sees economic gain as a you know I'm going to oppress and enslave these people for my own benefit and the the benefit of my nation, and I don't care about that nation. And so he, he murders, you know, uh, young male children, uh, in Israel. He, uh, and, and so all of this is kind of decreation language that this idea of chaos has entered in under his direction. And this harkens us back to the garden, right? And we say, how did we get here? Why is this happening? Well, it's the same theme that happened back there in, in Genesis 3. What was the temptation of our first parents, Adam and Eve? They wanted to be God. They wanted to usurp, subvert God's power, God's authority in their lives. They were trying to be God. That's what the text tells us. They, They saw the fruit was desirable to the eye to make one wise to be like God. The serpent said, you will be like God. And so what happens is when we try to you know, reject God's power and try to take it into our own hands and do it our own way. Chaos. Decreation. And that's what's been shown to us throughout this narrative up to this point that chaos, that creation is in chaos, right? Like frogs are popping out of the place and gnats are popping all over the place and, you know, you know, water rivers are turning into blood and darkness is in the land when it's supposed to be light out. That's decreation language. And why is all this happening? Because Pharaoh hardens his heart. He's stubborn. He still wants to do it his own way. And we'll even get these moments where he'll kind of relent and then he'll jump back to his pride and his stubbornness. 
And Pharaoh is just a picture of us. Anyone who tries to say, hey, God, I got this. Hey, thanks for salvation, but I got it now. Or I don't even need salvation. I, I, I got this. I could take it here, but on my own. Now, when we try to subvert God's power, this is what it leads to. It leads to decreation. It leads to, to chaos. Think about it this way that, you know, if, if God is our creator, right, he knows the very purpose for which he's made us. He knows how we're supposed to be used and what we're supposed to be used for. We're made to worship and to bring him glory. But when we take that and we try to put it into our own hands, we take something that belongs to God that knows what it's supposed to be used for and, and, and can really help it flourish. And we use it for our own, you know, intentions, right? I, I just recently bought a computer. Mine was getting old and I needed to update one. Now, if I were to take that computer and I were to use it as a hammer, what's going to happen? Decreation. <laughs> Chaos. Because I'm not using it the way it was intended. Right? I'm taking my power and saying, I'm going to use this however I want. Well, it's the same thing that's happening here in the book of Exodus. And so, there are rituals that we can develop, habits, practices, that things that we can do that help to combat this. To remind us, right, that it is by God's power that we're redeemed. And so we see this phrase here in uh, chapter 13. If we look at it, you can see in verse 3, uh, you can see in verse 9, you can see in verse 14, and you can see in verse 16, this repeated phrase that God brought the people out of the house of slavery by the strong hand of the Lord is what it says. And that praise is repeated, repeated four times in here. And so we have this repeated phrase. Clearly, this is kind of ritualistic, right? It's this repeated phrase. What is the author wanting us to remember? That, hey, we're redeemed, we're rescued, we're delivered by God's strong hand, by God's power, right? And a repeated phrase is, is something, it's a practice I've put into my own life as well that I like to, for different seasons of life or for different seasons of reading the scriptures, I like to develop what we call a mantra, right? A mantra is just a repeated phrase that reminds me of my uh, defining truth, a defining reality of my life. And so if we were to take this repeated phrase and develop it into a mantra, we'd say, God delivers by his strong hand. Is that not an important truth that we need today during this time as well? To remember God's Passover power? Yes, it is. And so we can develop these rituals Right? To remind us of our redemption, to remind us of the truth, the character of God, to the promises of God. So we've looked at God's Passover power, now let's look at God's Passover price. Right? So we narrow in here that we're going to, uh, look at the, the, the details of this that we can see um, in chapter 12, in verses 12 through 13, and verses 26 through 27, um, it, it, it says this, that when your children say to you, this is verse uh, you know, 26, what does this mean? What do we mean by this service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord, it's Passover, for he, was ple- he, he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, but he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. 
And the people bowed their heads in worship. And you go back to verses 12 through 13, right? And it says that they were to take the, the blood of this lamb that they had killed and put into a basin and dip the hyssop in and put it around their doorposts, right? And that blood is a price. And scripture tells us that life is in the blood. And so we're, we're, we're seeing a theme here that, you know, life for life, right? That if we actually, once again, this kind of creation language, this is rooted all the way back in Genesis 1 through 3, that when we go back to that story there, that we know sin enters the world through our first parents. They try to take God's power away from him and usurp his power and do things by their own power, right? Try to be God. And what happens? Sin enters the world. Chaos enters the world. And what do they feel? What's the result of that? What's the consequence of that? The consequence is, is that they're naked and ashamed. So now they have to live with that. And what does God do at the end of, he says, okay, yeah, there's consequences to this. And this is what those are going to be. Those are called the curse, curses of the fall, right? But if you look in verse 21, it says, and the Lord provided skins for them to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. Now, we have no, as far as I know, no other recording of death in Scripture until that point. Where did God get these animal skins from? He had to kill an innocent creature that did nothing. It had to die to cover someone else's sin. And so we see a similar theme here, that these animals had to die to cover the rescuing power of God for God's people. It's not the only price that we see in the text. We also see the price of the firstborns, right? This is in 29 through 32 in chapter 12. That the final plague is the death of the, the firstborns in the land of Egypt. And it just didn't affect the firstborns of humanity, but it even affect the firstborns of the livestock. It's affecting all of creation. There's that creation, decreation idea once again. This is not the only time that this has happened. We, in Genesis 22, we see that God asked God, uh, to Abraham to sacrifice his firstborn son, his one and only son, Isaac. Right? There's this price that is got to be paid for God to pass over our sins. Now notice, you know, there would be no need for this price to be paid if, if God's people were not sinful too, right? Like, couldn't God just pass over? Like, like, oh, I know Israelite lives there and I know an Israelite lives there. No, they had to put it around the doorframe because they're just as guilty of sin as the Egyptians. And so what we see here is that sinful choices have consequences, and that consequence is sacrifice. The price that has to be paid is sacrifice. So I think about it this way. You know, I, I said I wanted to be a professional soccer player, and I knew I, you know, I had to eat well, and, you know, I uh, had to exercise well, and, and then I would be healthy, and I'd be able to, to go out and play well, be fit. Now look, you know, I'm younger, I was a much, I can show you pictures, I'm much skinnier man than I am now. Uh, you know, some of that's age, metabolism, but it's also my choices. I know that there's good food I should eat. I know I should exercise more. And when I don't do those things, I become unhealthy. 
So if I want to become healthy, what's it going to require? It's going to require sacrifice, right? I got to give up those maybe, uh, those more, those fatty, good tasting foods and, you know, maybe I got to give up my, uh, vanilla and caramel lattes and, you know, I've got to exercise a bit more, take some of my free time to exercise and not just, you know, watch Netflix or, you know, play video games or, or read books, right? I've got to do some, some things that take care of my body as well. But there's going to be a price as well to pay. It's going to require some sacrifice for me to become healthy. So we've looked at God's Passover power. We looked at God's Passover price. Now, let's look at God's Passover provision. God's Passover provision. God's Passover provision is based off of God's Passover promises, or based off of his promises. Okay, His provision is based, it's grounded in his promises. And so we see Israel is delivered, right? So that's one thing he provided. He provided deliverance for them at the end, right, of chapter 12 and 22 or 29 uh, through 42. We see that deliverance take shape, right? That final plague happens. Pharaoh says, enough, out of here. And they literally, uh, the Egyptians even give them wealth to take with them. Right, And so that's another thing that's provided. We see deliverance is given, but it's not just deliverance in the sense that, oh, well, you know, you're free, go you know, do whatever. But they actually even take wealth. They take the wealth of Egypt with them. Right, So God doesn't just provide deliverance, but he provides wealth for, for a new life. Right, and, it, and they need this wealth because they're going to be a new nation Right, uh, that we see. Uh, God's rescuing power, his, you know, his Passover, his deliverance is not just even for the nation of Israel, but we see in verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And it's, so it's a mixed multitude that this is rooted in, you know, his promises. Okay. That it's not just redeeming Israel, but it seems like there were other nations that were being oppressed by Egypt and they want out of there too. So God's deliverance came, it provided not just for Israel, but for other nations as well. And then he provided rituals, right? In 12, 26, and 13, 1 and 2, 8 and 14, that there's these rituals, the ritual of, there's three rituals that are given here in chapter 12 and 13. There's the Passover, which is a festival that they're supposed to practice. We have the consecration of the firstborns. And then we have the feast of unleavened bread. And these rituals, these festivals serve as a reminder of God's rescuing power, God's rescuing provision. Okay, all of these provisions were based off of promises that you look at the deliverance and the wealth and it's based off of a promise that was given to Abraham where he, it was prophesied that his family would go into Egypt, be in oppression, be rescued 400 years later, and their wealth, the wealth of that nation would go with the new nation. See, that's a promise. And it's delivered here. So God's provision is based on his promises. But we see that these rituals, right, also... Um, help us to remember this redemption, to remember these promises, to remember the character and attributes of God. And look, we do this too, right? 
that when we look at the 4th of July, right, this is a festival that was put in place in our nation to help us to remember the liberation of us from the British. <laughs> it's not the only festival. There's also a festival called Juneteenth, which is popular in the, the, the black American community, Right? that celebrates the liberation of them from the majority culture in America, right? This is a minority culture that was enslaved by other Americans and treated terrible, much like the Israelites, oppressed. And they celebrate what's called Juneteenth to celebrate their liberation, their the Emancipation Proclamation that was given by Abraham Lincoln. And so we have these festivals within our nation that celebrate our liberation, that remind us we were once not free, but now we are. And so God put the same habit, he put the same idea into the rhythm of the nation of Israel, right? And we have these festivals that are to remind them of God's liberation, God's provision for them. Now, we, we know that there are um, festivals that are put into our lives as, a, as the church, as the Christian community, as God's people. This, one, this wasn't just something that he did in, in Israel, but this is something that we do as New Testament Christians as well. Literally, the Sunday gathering, the Sunday service that we do is supposed to be a ritualistic celebration that we do to remember God's deliverance in Christ. And particularly our church, not every church does this, but our church celebrates a meal during that as well called communion that helps us even narrow down even more specifically and say, hey, we're going to remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And that meal, when was that originally taken in the Gospels? It was taken during the time of the Passover. This is a picture of Jesus saying, guess what? That Passover thing was always about me. And so we have these habits that are put into the life of the church that end up developing or reminding us, hey, this is who you are, right? If God's redemption defines you, then here are some rituals that are going to help you remember this is who you are. God's character, our character in light of who he is and what he's done, this is a ritual that helps with that. These rituals remind us. So we've looked at God's Passover power. We've looked at God's Passover price. We've looked at God's Passover provision. Now let's, you heard me hinting at this, God's Passover picture. You see, there's a, a kind of a literary technique that's, that's used here that uh, in every commentary I read this week, they were all trying to figure it out. <laughs> you know, like, that, you know, why is this, there's this pattern, God will speak um, in Exodus 12 and 13, uh, and then Moses will, will go and instruct the people on what God spoke. And, and, and if you look at what God said to Moses, those instructions would be these festivals. Right? Like, he, there's these rituals that you're gonna do, and, and, and some of these he, he gives even before the event takes place, which shows you 
God know that that's emphasizing God's power again. Like uh, this is going to happen. Right? <laughs> I know this is going to happen. So here's what I want you to do to remember this. Um, and so we're, we're seeing God's sovereignty is, is power um, there, but it's, it's repeated. And there, and there's these ideas sprinkled throughout them, right? That in each is he's talking about the Passover, the consecration of, of the firstborns and the feast of unleavened bread that he says, the reason why I want you to do this is not just for this generation to remember God's deliverance, God's redemption, but to, for future generations to connect themselves to this past one. Right? Is that not what we're doing with the Lord's Day on our Sunday gatherings? Is that not what we're doing with communion? We weren't there at the cross. We weren't there at Golgotha. We weren't there at the resurrection, but we're there, you know, at this event, at communion on at the Lord's table, right? At our Sunday gathering, singing to God. All these traditions that were passed down, these rituals that were passed down to help us remember to, to connect. Our story is connected to the same story as the original people who experienced this. And so this thing, this thing is repeated as a, as a point of emphasis. I say this is not just for this current generation, but this is for all future generations that are to come. Right? That we have at least three generations within this story that are going to take place. Right? We have the people who are coming out of the land. That's one stage. We have the people who are going to be wandering in the wilderness. And then that group's going to, the, the adults that came out of the land and wandered in the wilderness, they're going to die off. Uh, and the young ones who, who may not remember as well the event are going to go into the, the promised land. The only ones who, who were there, adults, were, are going to be Joshua and Caleb. Moses isn't even allowed to go into the promised land. And so, it, you know, of course it makes sense that Moses, who, who's writing this, is going to say, okay, like, this isn't just for this past generation, but this is also for future generations, that this is the story of our people. Now, another reason that Biblical authors will do this is they want us to understand that there is this greater picture that's coming. They'll repeat certain biblical themes, ideas, phrases, right, rituals even, to show us that they're not fulfilled during that time. You see, why did Israel need the blood of the Passover on their doorpost? We talked about this, that they, they were sinful too. Don't forget that a lot of this story is rooted back in creation, that all of humanity fell and is now the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We're born into sin. And what did they need? Right? They needed to believe that if I am covered if the doorpost of my house is covered by the blood of the lamb, God's wrath will pass over. I will be redeemed. And so Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he says, guys, this, this meal that we've been celebrating for so long, for, you know, millennia, <laughs> this meal is about me. These rituals are about me. Now, if we look in verse 8, it says, They shall eat the flesh 
that night. What's the flesh of? It's the flesh of this lamb. Roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Have you ever noticed in the meal, in the Gospels, there's bread, there's unleavened bread, there's wine, there's no lamb. I never noticed that before. I learned it this week. (laughs) There's no lamb. The reason there's no lamb at the table there in the Gospels is because Jesus is the lamb. Remember what John the Baptist says in John 1, 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, Jesus is the picture. He's the fulfillment of the picture. The Lamb's blood was sacrificed, right? Put on the wooden cross. Taken into the grave. Jesus is the firstborn Son who was sacrificed to pay for our redemption. See, the Passover is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Jesus. It's a beautiful event that tells the story of our, our forefathers. And we're, we're, we've been adopted and grafted into that family line. We don't want to be disconnected from the Passover. It's an important story to the life of God's people. But there's a greater story that it points us toward, that pushes us toward Jesus. And so we need these kinds of reminders, these great reminders of this great story. That if this story defines our lives, we need rituals that are going to remind us, you're redeemed, you've been rescued, you've been delivered by the blood of the Lamb. And so we do have these Gathered rituals, but we should also have scattered rituals. Right? Our gathered rituals is the preaching of the word at the Sunday gathering, the singing of songs, the taking of the sacraments together, communion. But we also need scattered habits as well, friends. Right? As you remember, I I told you if I wanted to be a good soccer player, I needed to practice. I needed to eat healthy. (laughs) I needed to exercise. By the time I got to college, I dribbled a ball all around campus. You know, <laughs> I, mean, I had to learn how to keep a ball close to my feet. So it's not just the things that I do in practice with my teammates, my gathered habits, but my scattered habits, my individual habits as well. And so we want to stay in these individual habits as well. I've given you one that you can develop mantras for different seasons of life. But I mean, it, it's simple stuff here, guys. It's been passed down from generation to generation. Read the word. Pray. Try as best you can in this epidemic time to, to do community. I love seeing the church that we're so desperate. We know this is an important habit to our lives. And we're like, hey, we'll even get on a video call. <laughs> do whatever it takes to have gospel community, right? Now, just as a last few points of, a, of encouragement here for you, there is one way, you know, like I'm always looking for fresh ways that I can you know, remind, ritualistically kind of remind myself of my redemption, of, of God's defining power in my life, his price, his provision, right? I need these pictures. And so there's a, there's a wonderful book uh, called uh, A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent that is full of just 
all different types of meditations of gospel promises and gospel truths. And I've seen people take some of these. They're they're just short little paragraphs and you can write them on an index card and keep them in your back pocket for, you know, all the, that kind of ages me out there for the millennials. You can type it on your phone and pull it out and make it a screenshot. I don't know, you can make a screenshot or, you know, put it as your wallpaper on your computer. I I don't know, whatever you got to do, be creative. (laughs) But just ritualistically put these paragraphs in your path right, of your week, of your day, to just pull them out and look at them and remind yourself of gospel truth. You can download the audio book and you can put together audio clips that you can listen to in your car, on your, you know, on your phone, or you go for a run, right? We just need to immerse ourselves in these reminders of who we are, just like Israel. We need these festivals. We need habits. We need things that we we develop that will help us to remember this is who we are. This is who God is. He's our rescuer. He's our deliverer. He's our redeemer. And I need reminders so that I don't forget because this is a defining moment for Israel's life, right? The formation of a new nation. Well, is not the gospel a more defining moment for the Christian? (laughs) It should mark and define our lives, and so we should immerse ourselves in this. So in closing, friends, let's not forget that if God's redemption defines who we are, if it really does, then we need God's ritual reminders to point us back to who we are in Christ. May we develop those, not only during this time, but for a lifetime until he comes once again and rescues us from this sinful, broken world. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. Just by reading your text, by going through Exodus 12, this scattered habit of just reading the Bible, can get these wonderful reminders of your power. Of the price, the sacrifice that you had to pay. The provision you give us. And all of these things in this text and so many other texts, things in our lives are a picture that point us back to your beauty. The majesty of your character. You are a rescuer. You are a deliverer. It's not a government. It's not a job. It's not a relationship. It's not the amount of money in our bank account. It's not how cool our car is or how well it works. These are not our deliverers. You are. This text reminds us of that. We were once slaves, but we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that Lamb's name is Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.